reading this morning from Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28, and you'll find that on page 1135 of the Church Bibles. Page 1135, Romans chapter 8, and beginning at verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good, well keep that uh, passage open before us. They do, not only is the, are they the climax to Romans 1 to 8, but they also contain some of the parts of the Bible that we turn to particularly in times of need. Now in times of need we're not always our clearest thinking, so it's very important to be clear as to what the Apostle is saying and what he isn't saying. Because if we misunderstand the Bible and we set our hearts upon something we misunderstand, we're likely to become disappointed, which runs the risk of discarding the God that we've misunderstood, and that is to lose out unavoidably. Well, verse 28 then. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So, the opener is that God works, and it is reassuring that we're not, um, we're not just deists. We think that there's a creator, but he's kind of unknowable and untouchable and doesn't communicate. Um, no, we believe in a God who is at work. He is sustaining and preserving this universe. Life is not random. It is not a matter of blind chance. He's running the show and there are no accidents. 
This is something to be very grateful for. Nothing is outside of his control. And we read that he works for our good. This is not saying that everything that happens to us is good. He's certainly not saying that suffering is good. He is saying that God uses the good that happens to us and the bad that happens to us to serve his purpose in furthering what he defines as the good in our lives. John Newton, who was that 18th century slave trader turned clergyman and hymn writer, deduced from this verse this. He wrote, Everything is needful that he sends, nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends, nothing can be needful that he withholds. So if we think we need some good thing that God withholds from us, in reality we are mistaken. We don't need it. It also means that if we feel our life has been ruined by some bad thing, in reality it is playing some important role in our lives. It's teaching us, moulding us, enriching us, humbling us. This verse teaches us to look at life's troubles as part of God's loving purpose for us. This gives us a balanced view on suffering, whether it's self-inflicted or from outside of our control. We don't say, no good can come out of it. Good can come from it. Nor do we think suffering in itself is good. The text does not say that the things are good, merely that God works them for good. So trials and temptations are not good, but the results can be. Next we read, in all things God works. That is, in all the stages and ages of our lives and in every aspect of our lives. It includes both the good times and the bad times when things are not good. All does really mean all. It even means at times when we deliberately backslide into sin. Now sin is always a terrible thing but, and we will always live to regret its painful consequences in our lives. But God is so great that he is able to weave it together for our ultimate good. He can use even our sins and failures to humble us and teach us so that we gain a right view of ourselves and a greater appreciation of Christ. He makes use of sin to show Christians our weakness and our frailty. And he even works through sin to save his people. Now this doesn't excuse our sin, but it does cause us to look for how God is working through it. Now you may recall in the Old Testament, in the days of the patriarchs, you may recall Joseph's brothers. They were jealous of Joseph and they sold him to people traffickers on their way to the Egyptian slave markets. But there, God raised up Joseph. It took a few decades, but he became 
the Grand Vizier, the person in charge of all the arrangements to cope with the famine that God had revealed to him in advance. And so he was in a position to feed that part of the world, not just the Egyptians, when the famine came years later. And when his brothers were forced to go to Egypt to buy grain, eventually Joseph revealed himself and he said to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. God used their sin, in other words, to ensure that they, the people of God, would not be wiped out. The people of God would be saved to achieve God's intended purposes for them and actually for the entire world. Now, this good, which is the outcome, is neither for everyone nor true for everyone. It is for those who we read love him and for those who have been called according to his purpose, which are two ways of saying the same thing. It's for those who love him, which ordinarily means those who have made a commitment to God, to serve God in recognition and appreciation for who he is. Love in the Bible, Tim Keller says, is never merely theoretical and intellectual, nor merely sentimental and emotional, nor merely duty or will-based. Love is setting your heart on God so that in all you do, you determine to please him. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on this passage. He says, I believe that Paul has special reason for using the term love rather than the term believing at this point. One of the best ways whereby we can decide immediately if we love God or not is our reaction to adversity. There are many people who, when trials and tribulations arise, they give up. They feel they have been let down. You see, if you love God for who he is in himself, you make a commitment and you endure the difficulty. But if you're using God for what he gives you, you bail out when the suffering comes. The second way Paul describes a Christian is those who have been called according to his purpose, which can't mean everybody who's ever heard the gospel, since in verse 30 there is um, an indication that those called are limited. It must mean called and responded, so that they've entered into a relationship with him. Now, since Paul thinks that all things work together for good only to those who love God, there's a strong implication that all things do not work for the good of those who do not love him. The verse says that both the good and the bad things of our lives have a good effect on us only because of how God overrules and uses them in our lives. And so it looks as though both the good and the bad things that happen to a non-Christian work adversely against them, which may sound shocking, but think about it. Paul very directly said at the very beginning of uh, his letter to the Romans regarding the rebellious that God gave them over 
in the sinful desires of their hearts too, and then there's a whole list of things. Paul is saying that one of the worst punishments God gives people is to let them have the desires of their own sinful heart. Letting them have what they want means the good things are bad and those who don't, for those who don't love God. Now why is this? Well, people outside of God already have the illusion that they are self-made people and in control of their lives and destiny. At least bad circumstances wake Christians up to our true humanity and our actual condition as dependent mortal creatures. But when an unbelieving heart experiences a a string of successes and pleasures, it only reinforces the illusion and can make the worst sins in the human heart, pride, overconfidence, self-centeredness, grow and take over. In an unbeliever, therefore, Good circumstances can harden and delude, promote a weak, selfish character, and set us up for a disaster. We go bang. We believe our own publicity, and it pops. For believers, bad circumstances can humble, educate, and develop in them a strong, compassionate character, most importantly, to make someone like Christ. So in the upside-down world, which is God's take on things, good circumstances can be terrible for you, and bad circumstances can be wonderful for you. As our author of this letter, Paul, knew from his own experience He writes in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, which were a good thing, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, which was a very painful thing, though we don't know what it was. So what makes a life good is not a particular set of circumstances, but how our heart, the essential us, interacts with them. And this is a major principle for understanding and living life. It is not as important to change our circumstances as it is to change our heart's attitude and stance towards them. It is as we believe and live out this verse that we will be able to meet with triumph and disaster and treat them both the same, viewing them as circumstances that as we love the God who has called us to know him as Father, he will work in and through them for our ultimate good. And it has, I must say, been a privilege to know some, uh, what some of you have had to deal with in life, quite a large number, really, and how you have been living examples of the outworking of this truth from Romans 8. 28. How we react to the ups and downs of life is for a purpose, verse 29, which we are told is to be conformed to the likeness of his son. The good that God is talking about for us is character change. 
So verse 28 has to be taken with 29 to 30 because Paul is not saying that God gives more good things or better circumstances to Christians over non-Christians. He is not saying that. What he is saying is that all things, the same basic range of good and bad things that happen to all people, are used by God so that in the inner us we are taught, humbled and refined into the likeness of Christ. The same circumstances have a different effect in believers from unbelievers. And Christians are to end up like his son. That is God's purpose. That is his ultimate good. Well, in verse 30, we have this unbreakable chain of hopes where Paul uses five active verbs to flag up the stages in the process in which he transforms us into the likeness of his son. And each verb refers to the same set of people. And the first stage in the unbreakable chain of hope is foreknowledge, that God has lovingly chosen us from before the creation of the world for an eternal relationship with him. Now, of course, God is omniscient. He knows the future and he knows everyone who has lived and ever will live. But that's not what Paul is referring to here, or it would mean universalism, which is the view that everyone will end up like Christ, even if they've got no desire to be so at all. Now, in Scripture, to know someone is to love them in a personal way. For instance, when Jesus says, I never knew you in Matthew 7:23. He doesn't mean that he doesn't know about them, but that he hasn't had no relationship with them. The next stage is predestined, which means he has decided our ultimate destiny, which is to end up like Jesus. Then there is stage three, called. We have seen that called that the called are people who love God. They're the ones who, on hearing the gospel, have had their eyes opened, their minds illuminated, they've become convinced of the truth, convicted of their sin, and have had their hearts disposed to respond in love and gratitude to God. And in doing so, stage four, they become justified, declared right with God because of Christ's work through his death on our behalf, so that we are in a position to transfer our unrighteousness to him, and in return he transfers his righteousness to us. And then the end, stage five, glorified, to have sin eradicated and to be made perfect in body and soul. And notice that he talks about this future action in the past tense. He's saying that it's that it is as certain as any other part of the chain. So certain that it might as well already have happened. You see, he sees that the chain cannot be broken. We can look back down the chain to see what has happened. And we can look up the chain to see what will happen. Those God foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. So from before time, in time and beyond time, 
God's been at work. He is at work and he will be at work, transforming us to be like his original son. Now in the light of that um, five unbreakable links in the chain, there is what John Stott refers to as five unanswerable questions, verses 31 to 39, where you basically end up saying either nothing or nobody. So if he's, so Paul puts these questions. If God is for us, who is against us, verse 31? Well, there are possible candidates. There's opposition from unbelievers. There's indwelling sin in our own lives. That's still present, even though we're believers. There's death, which none of us can avoid. And there's even the devil himself. But are any of these greater than God? Well, no. When I was in the early years of secondary school, on our sports day, one of the activities we had was a tug-of-war contest. And in my year group, the same house won every year. I've long since forgotten what it was called, but I can remember its colour. Now, why did they always win? Well, because they had Lancefield. Lancefield was twice the size of even the biggest of the rest of us. Even though for, I think, three Christmases in a row when I was that sort of what would now be years seven, eight, and nine, I would put on about three quarters of a stone. Then I'd spend the rest of the year growing up to maintain the athletic physique, but that's what I did. I just, I was a glutton at Christmas. But even though I bulked up and added a bit of extra weight from the year before, it made no difference. With Lancefield, the Greens always won. They were invincible. The second question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Verse 32. If God, in other words, who has purposed our glory, is willing to give up the one who is most precious to him, his son, why do we need to worry about the rest of our needs? We don't. It's not unlike an engagement. If the guy has forked out a fortune on the engagement ring, he is going to follow through on the much less costly wedding ring on the big day. Question three, who shall bring a charge against God's elect, verse 33? And again, we're in the high court of heaven, and the answer is that God has got no charge against us. He's not making any accusations. Christ, our advocate, has pleaded our case. God, the judge, has acquitted us. We are justified. And once the case has been dismissed, any accusations just won't stand up. The devil might try to rake up the past. He may try and accuse you of past sins. After all, his name means accuser of the brethren. But no accusations will stand because you are in Christ. God has justified you. The fourth question, who is to condemn? Well, our hearts may condemn us. We have our, if you like, theological wobbles. Our critics and enemies may but such notions are nonsense. Why? Because of Jesus Christ again. He has died for us, 
He's died for our sins, which needed condemning. He was raised to life so that we can see that God approves of his sacrifice and the transaction works. God approves that he's able to take our place so our charges can be dismissed. We no longer face condemnation. And he's ascended. And in heaven he advocates our case to God. So there is no possibility of condemnation. And a final question. The question that it has all actually been about. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. And then he records all the possibilities. Trouble, hardship, persecution are three likely candidates. But haven't we all read or heard of or even been fortunate enough to either meet or know Christians who in this life have really drawn a short straw and yet they shine for Christ through it all. Those whom, for whom life has been tough, whether because of health or handicap, disaster or injustice. Many of us will recall the story in the film of uh, someone like Joni Erickson who was confined to a wheelchair from the age of 17 because she dived into a river and damaged her spinal cord. And haven't we heard of Christians living in challenging countries, atheistic ones like North Korea, Muslim ones like Saudi Arabia, Hindu ones like India, Buddhist ones like Myanmar, and even Jewish ones like Israel and the occupied territories countries where they, as Christians, are unfairly discriminated against, maybe in terms of educational opportunities, or at the other extreme, even death. And yet so often they would seem to say Christ is very close, often closer than for us, for whom things are more comfortable. Famine and poverty are and not seen as barriers to Christ. So often I've observed that those Christians who are the poorest are the most generous proportionately, inspired by God's grace and generosity towards them. And then danger. Can that separate? Dr. Helen Rosevear, who died last year, was one who knew the presence of the love of God while she went through a terrifying ordeal as a missionary doctor working in the Congo during the Simba Rebellion in 1964. One night her house was surrounded. She was attacked and sexually assaulted, raped in fact, by some rebel soldiers. And this is how she tells her story, with some restraint, I think we'd agree. She writes, the soldiers, <coughs> the soldiers came, naked beams of light stabbed the night, and I was alone. They found me, dragged me to my feet, struck me over the head and shoulders, flung me on the ground, kicked me, dragged me to my feet, only to strike me again. Suddenly, Christ was with me. No vision, no voice but his very real presence. I screamed in pain, humiliation, fear above all, 
fear mingled with pain, yet at the same moment, an intense sense of peace, a strange deep joy as he, God, took over from me. Such a mixture of emotions. Perhaps it can make no sense to others, and yet he was real, vital, vibrant, and real to me. And then there is the final attempt to separate us from the love of God, death. It may separate us from our loved ones for a time, or sadly for eternity. But the God of this salvation plan is greater than death. I had a dear old friend many years ago called Stan Micklewright. He was a great saint in his early 80s at the time, back in the, well, early to mid-1980s. He was always encouraging to me as a young curate, always positive. He'd been a deacon, a, a lay officer in Westminster Chapel in the days of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Before I completed my curacy, he had his final illness and it took him three months to die. During that time, it was a privilege and a tonic to visit him. On almost the last occasion, he took my hand and looked me straight in the eye and with eyes watering said, I know I've done wrong, but I know he's forgiven me. I know he wants me. And that can be true for all of us. God has worked out a great plan to rescue us, to end our separation from him. The offer is there. If we respond to the call, there is no separation. Nothing we read in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. <laughs>